0: Boag World is brought to you by headscape.co.uk in association with GetSignoff.com and the website owner's manual. On this week's show, Daniel Berker and Joe Stump from Dig discuss the supposed war between designers and developers. I talk about using Twitter effectively and we ask, are you placing too much emphasis on your homepage? Hi
1: Paul, how are you doing? Hi, Paul, how are you? Hello, Paul.
0: Hi Paul. Hi Paul, Hi Paul and Marcus. first ever BoEggWorld.com podcast. World. Hello welcome to the 100th episode of World. Oh. Oh. Fifty second episode of BuyWorld.com podcast for those involved in designing, developing and running websites on a daily basis. My name's Paul Bag. And my name is Marcus Lillington. And I'm friggin' freezing. It's cold in here. It's very cold in here. I've lost all feeling in my extremities. You know why? Because we've got a Scottish manager director <laughs> yes. who refuses to have the heating on at all over the weekend. Yes. I know. <laughs> and it's, see Oh, there's still snow on the ground yes. outside. When you come in on Monday morning and you're doing a podcast and you can see your own breath, yeah. something's wrong. I'm actually okay because I knew that it was gonna be like this and I've got this huge jump on yeah. my feet are freezing. I know, it's it's bad in oh, and, so many and ways. Paul's
2: sickly Paul is sickly again. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> I really if I did like exercise and Eat healthily. Do you think I might be better? I eat healthily. Don't do exercise. It actually makes you feel worse. Does it really? Is that a scientific fact? Well, look at all footballers all die in their 50s. Very true. And I mean, the number of injuries you can get from doing exercise... Absolutely. Straining you things. You might fall over or something. Exactly. Don't do exercise. But eat healthily. Right. Well, actually, eat a lot. My wife would be very offended that I imply that I don't eat healthily. Exactly, yes. Because she feeds me very well. It's just that I eat a lot of unhealthy stuff behind her back. Oh, that's fine. That's fine. Oh, that's okay. Yeah, yeah. You, oh, right. As long as you eat a sort of, you know, decent <coughs> decent dinner. Right. With,
2: you know, nice British reared meat and all that stuff. And right. It has to be British reared meat. Absolutely. Even if you're an American. Even if you're an American. Okay. Um,. And then you can eat as many, you know,
0: dodgy burgers and chocolate bars as you like. Right, I see. Oh, that's really interesting. You ought to set up a kind of some kind of diet club <laughs> yeah. or something. Health club. Well, you know me. Mild Fit as a fiddle, strong as an ox. Yeah, right smoking must really help as well yeah of course it does that you gave up keeps, on, um, on this podcast keeps
2: uh i'm ignoring you um <coughs> it keeps um keeps all nasty germs and things away it probably does, it does. <laughs> and makes me generally happy it's like binge drinking good
0: for you yeah very very good for you okay good. it's all um, you do know that we have minors that listen to the show <laughs> And actually, pay attention to what we have to say, kids. <laughs> yes. Don't listen to Marcus; he's yes, a bad man. You, you never have your tongue in cheek ever. Do no, you, no, never. Like in recent posts Oops. on my site that no. have got got. Well, all I can say is the more um, the more controversial you are on your blog, the more traffic you get. I've got a huge number. I've posted for those that don't know. I recently posted an article on. On Berg, well, Based on a presentation I gave at BathCamp, the 10 things that a, a good web designer would never tell you. Mm. And then I go on to basically say that you should always demand speculative design and you only need to design for IE6 and stuff like that, yeah. which uh, generated quite a few comments from a surprising number of thick people. Because <laughs> like, I put right at the top of the page a blooming big yellow box that says, this is tongue in cheek, mm. do not take seriously. People still took it seriously. There's a usability issue there. Then, obviously, with the yellow box. Obviously, yes. <laughs> All people are thick. One or
2: the other. Well, so, are you excluding thick people, Paul? <laughs> yes. That's, thick people so not accessible
0: announced. for thick people. Yes. If you're thick, you're not wanted on my blog. <laughs> Only the most intelligent people read Belag oh, um, mm. Yeah. <laughs> so I had <clears> an epiphany <throat> this week. Did you? Ooh, Did you? always. Oh, so that, that somebody's computer? Nice yeah. Oh, that's my computer. I'm going to turn it off. Well, okay. I'll
2: well, I better sort of fill in while no, while really he's not, wandered over there. See, it's not far to go, was it? I've forgotten what
0: you were talking about. I had an epiphany. Oh wow! Which is very exciting. I've decided, I felt the last few weeks our show's been a bit crap. Yeah. What last <laughs> few weeks? <laughs> and I, I've, I've identified what the problem is. Right. Because I'm, I don't know what's coming in. No, no, it's going to be fine. It's going to be fine. I'm replacing you as as co-host. That's that was fundamentally the problem. Fair of the enough, show. yeah, yeah. Now the the problem that I think I've we've had is that we've been really committed to doing decent show notes, haven't we? And we, we, you know, so that people that can't listen to the show for whatever reason can read it online, it's yeah. people with, um, you know, hearing difficulties or whatever else. And we've been so committed to that, and we've done such uh, thorough show notes, and the show notes have really become the thing, really. And, and um, they've, they've, a lot of them have been blog posts that i have then brought yeah. onto to the show. But I think the problem is, is that we've ended up reading. We read too much. It's too scripted. You couldn't agree more. So what I'm going to do this, oh, well, I've <laughs> got. Then you have a, had the problem, don't you? It's chicken and egg. Well, no, because I think, see, yes, it is an interesting question. It's quite an interesting accessibility question. Yeah. But actually, I think you, you, it's okay to accept that they're two different mediums, that the print word, printed word is different to a radio broadcast or yeah. a, you know, audio yeah. broadcast or video or whatever else. So. I'm not sure I'm entirely convinced with the principle, and no doubt I'll get complaints about this, but I'm not entirely convinced by the principle that you should have a complete transcript. I mean, we don't do a transcript anyway, because it would just be impossible to cope with all of our... What does WCAG 2 say? Well, WCAG 2 applies a transcript. But Mm. actually, I think what's important is that the same information is communicated, right? But it doesn't mean it has to be communicated in the same way. So, for example... i have got to see the definition of the word transcript. Yeah, it will be interesting. But, for example, you know, if you talk, um, you know, you, you often use abbreviations of stuff. Hmm. So, um, you'll say he's instead of he is. You know, when you write, you tend to write, he is, don't you? Yes. So, you know, there are a little difference, but I think you, that you could take that even further and say that there are different ways of communicating information. For example, in the show notes now I've started including imagery. Well, that's not going to work on an audio podcast. No. So actually, I've given myself a little bit more freedom that we're going to cover the same content, but not necessarily word for word anymore. Well, I like that. I think. But I
2: don't think it's necessarily following the letter of the law.
0: No, but I think it's following the spirit of the law. And I'm a great believer in following the spirit of the law rather than the letter of the law. Okay. In other words, I like to yeah, I the say. Yeah, so the So it fits with what I want to do. No, I think, <laughs> I think it's very valid. And I think it'll be a better podcast as a result. So okay. I've, I've, as you can see from my show notes, I've highlighted key things. So that we make sure we cover all the key points, but it'll be done slightly differently. So should we demonstrate this newfound and exciting approach to the podcast? So I can make up news stories as we go along. No, you can't do that. But we can start with the news if you'd like. So I discovered a really interesting thing this week. That relates to our news, and that is that um, you know that we do all our news via Delicious. So yes, Paul yes. Stanton basically tags things with um, a keyword when f- to to you know flag them up as potential stories for me to read. Yeah, Paul Stanton is our researcher that does all our news stories, and um, uh, actually those appear then at the bottom of uh, the Boag World website as well. So you can actually subscribe to our news stories by going. You do? Do I do. Oh, cool. And very occasionally, I might find one of them interesting. (laughs) (laughs) Ha ha. So um, you can go along to com. scroll down to the bottom. It's got interesting links. And you can subscribe there. Yep. But, no, what I've what I discovered is interesting is something that Delicious did, which I didn't know it could do, which apparently everybody else in the world, according to Twitter, seems to know. Right? <laughs> I don't. But if you go username colon boagworld, it's kind of highlighted for, for me to see. It's like you're recommending this article for, for boagworld or whatever. So if you do find links um that you you tag in delicious and you think, hey that'd be great for the boag world show mm. then just add user colon paul stanton or user colon boag world um and we'll get them and we'll have a look at them and we'll uh, review them and might include them in the show because we might as well get everybody helping really yeah, news stories, marvellous. Um, yes, and I did, I, and several. I apologise to those users that have been doing this for, <laughs> for several months, and I haven't realised, <laughs> <laughs> but I have been looking back through them, and I have included some. Right, so news stories. Yes. Okay, that was quite an Australian yes there. Yes, I don't know where that came from. Is that an Australian accent you're doing there? Ha 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 ha. So, um, I want to talk a little bit about video. And video case studies and customer testimonials and that kind of thing. we talked about this a bit. We the have. Other day. We have so um I mean, I think we've said it before that that increasingly, you know in our web strategies, um, we' we're, we're using video more and more, so whether you're embedding video in your own website or whether you're kind of posting video out there at places like YouTube and stuff like that. Video is becoming an important tool, especially on commercial sites now where it's been used for everything from product demonstrations through to viral marketing. Um, But the the area that I want to talk about uh, today is customer case studies. And it's because this week, uh, 37 Signals have... Um, released a blog post where they explain the process they went through to create the customer testimonials on for their high-rise product which is a product that I really think we should be using it's a customer relationship management really lightweight one it's not yeah you always say this and so we have no control over our sales leads whatsoever we don't need them so if you ever contact Headscape Um, wanting you know to work with us and maybe you hear from us once and then we never come back to you again (laughs) it's because marcus is badly organized (laughs) anyway that's beside the point Um, So customer testimonials. And they they, they, they include some customer testimonials on the um, High Rise website and their videos and their talking heads and stuff like that. And so they've produced this article that talks about the process they went through to do this. And I've never seen anything like this published before. And it's really, really good. So they cover things like how to choose who to interview, Mm -hmm. um, the way that they actually shot the video. People that can talk properly. Yes. yes. People that can actually string two words (laughs) together. Yes. quite a good um and various other criteria <laughs> yeah. it's a bit more than that but you know um how they shot the videos what questions they asked how they actually conducted the interviews um how they edited the video afterwards and the time they spent preparing the whole thing so it it's a really really quality post and i think as more and more of us are including this kind of thing in their site, I'm going to go and look at this. It, it is worth looking at seriously. Mm. And it's you know they talked about you know how long it took them and, and mm. stuff like that. And it doesn't take that long. It doesn't need to be you know a big overhead. And it's actually that not that complicated to do. Mm. To make it look quite professional these days, it's so easy to produce video. And basically, the key is you have a couple of cameras. Yeah. As long as you've got two cameras filming from different angles and you can cut between the two, it looks great. You yeah. know. So it doesn't take a lot to make it look good. So that was my first news story. Um, Second one I wanted to mention today is another post from Smashing Magazine, an excellent article that I highly recommend to all website owners. And no, before you say it, no, it's not my article on (laughs) Twittering, um, which uh, I've had my first article on on Smashing Magazine. I feel really important now. It was a top 10 list, obviously. (laughs) (laughs) yes (laughs) yes <laughs> so i've got another one coming out this week but we're not we're not talking about that which i will be talking about later in the show um but we are talking about an article they posted called clear and effective communication in web design and it's basically an article about how to communicate on the web um both in terms of copy and visuals if that makes sense yeah okay. and how the two kind of work together and it's a pretty comprehensive this is such a contradiction in terms but it's a is very comprehensive, a comprehensive summary, <laughs> but it's very superficial as well. So it kind of covers a, a very broad range of different things, but doesn't go into a lot of depth on any particular one. Um, okay. So it, the article focuses primarily on your website and doesn't really kind of cover, you know, broader communication issues, such as, you know, using social networks and stuff like that. So it's about your website. But it does tackle things like different methods of communication. In other words, you know, how you use things like imagery, text, titles, icons, you know, different display styles, color, audio, visual, all the different elements that affect the way that we communicate and the message that we send out. Um, It talks about the challenges of communicating clearly, um, including the curse of too much copy, Mm -hmm. um, the need to add personality and loads of other stuff as well. And it also talks about the benefits of communicating um and oh sorry that's completely wrong where did that word come from benefits that's not <laughs> on my highlighted list of things to say no um it talks about um what you should be communicating so talking about who your company is what your website offers what benefits there it is so you're just it is, there jumping was. ahead again yeah but that's really it's not a highlighted word i shouldn't have even been saying that shows my dyslexia coming out mm. not that i really am dyslexic i'm just stupid which counts, I guess. So, Boag World isn't for you, then? <laughs> no, <laughs> no, apparently not. <coughs> um, I was waiting for you to say, but no, Paul, you're not stupid. But no, he didn't say that. Sorry, um, uh, no, Paul, you're not stupid. Thank you. That sounded really sincere. So, anyway, check check out this post on Smashing Magazine. Um, it's it it's really good because it talks about bringing design and copy together, and the whole really the whole subject of art direction, which is something that um, I'm going to be discussing with Jeffrey Zeldman soon. Could you tell the little quaver in my voice of nervousness there? Mm-hmm. I'm really excited about it. I'm interviewing him well, tomorrow. You, yeah, but you just kind of, you say, ask him a question and let him talk. Oh, yeah.
2: That's what I always no do No one wrong. wants
0: to hear your voice, no, Paul. No, that's what I do wrong with interviews. <laughs> I think people are more interested in me than the person I'm interviewing. No. no. <laughs> I can tell something else from this new informal technique that we're using. Everything's going to take a lot longer. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, next up, do we place too much emphasis on the homepage? page? yes depends depends (laughs) there we go that's that new story move on move on no this is a post from uh christian watson um who uh, it's a new guy i haven't come across him before um but it was a really good post um this is where i discovered that christian watson is the most famous web designer in the whole world (laughs) and, and i'm the only person that doesn't know again yes um he basically has written an article um, talking about how one of his clients has requested a homepage redesign. Mm-hmm. And in it, he writes, um, sure, I could refresh the colors and move some content around. But is it a good use of my time and her money when the homepage only represents 20 to 25% of her page views? That's a lot, isn't it? No, it's not that much. 20 to 25%. Not for a homepage. But what's, ah, right, yeah, not, so, what's so, not so? What's interesting here is not so much the percentages or anything else. It's that Christian basically argues that too much emphasis is placed on the homepage. Well, in effect, really, all is it, all it is is a gateway page that directs contents to content. Uh, sorry, directs users to important content. It's not got important content in its own right. Um, that depends i like the word it depends yes at the you
2: do uh headscape has <coughs> only got a home oh yes well that's because we're a single page site which so. is kind of cool so that makes worse what we're saying our statement that we're making there is that home pages are really
0: important people don't want to navigate off to other pages no <laughs> we're not saying that we're saying that the majority well when i went for a single page my motivation there was nothing to do with the number of pages it was the amount of content mm. that i felt that in our situation we were providing too much content online we were. And we were over-complicating things, and we were bogging users down in stuff that mm. they're never going to read, but and equally, actually we just wanted them to get in contact with us. So, so a, a site, a fairly small
2: site, like a, a business like ours that hasn't got reams and reams and reams of product, <coughs> product or university sites with endless um, stuff that people want to research... The, the thing is, you can reduce the content and keep the structure the same, but then people will be moving off to pages that have got no, hardly any content on them. So you may as well put it on the homepage.
0: Yes. It depends. It, it, what it depends not, is the amount of content, really. Uh, yeah, possibly. It, yeah, but the primary role in the vast majority of cases of a page is a gateway page. Actually, um, Christian borrows an analogy from um, Jacob Nielsen that's really good, where he compares a homepage to a hotel lobby. Um, and he actually writes this. I'll read you. Jared Spool. Right. What did I say? Jacob Nielsen. Did I really? Yeah. I'll just make stuff up now. It's great, isn't it? It doesn't really matter. Only huh. Jeremy Keith gets upset. Nobody else cares. So <laughs> let me read you what um, uh, Christian writes. He says, um, or is this J- um, Jared? Or is it Jacob even? Somebody wrote this anyway. Well, you've, In the show notes that we're ignoring, it says Jared Spool. It does say Jared Spool. But I don't know whether Jared Spool wrote the quote below. below. (laughs) I can't remember where I picked it up from. Somebody wrote this quote, but it wasn't Jacob Nielsen. It was either Jared or Christian. Shall I read the quote? carry on. When visitors arrive at your hotel, certainly um, they should find the lobby... you know presents a, the hotel favorably. It should be attractive, spacious, with elegant lighting, welcoming colors, um, and the odd feature here and there. The lobby should make it easy for the visitor to orientate themselves, um, to see where the front desk is, where the lifts are. It should make it easy for a guest to find out important information at a glance, upcoming events and where the conference uh, is being held. However. Hotels are ultimately judged by the quality of their rooms, rather, you know, rather than the lobby, hmm. um, and and that's what it comes down to. That you know, it's about the individual pages, the individual hotel rooms, rather than you know the the actual lobby itself, which I think is a very good po- uh, point. And it was, you know, it was a good article and it gave me th- food for thought. Cool. So there we go. We're only going to do new- three news stories today. Okay. We normally do four, and it's because we have an excellent interview coming up with Joe Stump and Daniel Berker um, about the relationship between designers and developers. Joe and, and, and Daniel both work for, for Dig, um, Joe being a developer, Daniel being a designer. And so they talk about their relationship together, and it, it's a, a fairly long interview, so I thought I'd keep the news down fairly short and thank you to Sean. Pa- pause the for podcast tra- now, go and make yourself a cup of tea, get <laughs> yourself comfy <laughs> <laughs> and then come back, <laughs> and come back again. Um, yeah, thank you for Sean um, for transcribing this show, it is much appreciated as it was a bit of a mammoth one to do. Okay, here's the interview. So I'm really excited to have joining me today um, Daniel Burker and Joe Stump from Dig. Hello guys. Hello. Hey, hey. So uh, I've had both of you on the show individually and Joe, you weren't—you were on not long ago, were you? Really? Uh,
3: yeah, a couple of months ago,
0: maybe. What can I say? We can't survive without you. <laughs> so, um, but I thought let's bring the two of these wonderful people together and talk about designer-developer relationships and and how the two of them get on together working at Dig. I mean, I have to say this is just a rip-off, really, isn't it? It's a rip-off of a, a panel you did. Was that a future of web design? You did that panel.
1: Uh, Yeah, it was at Future Web Design in New York. I think we're rehashing the panel at um, South by Southwest this year. So if anyone's there, it would be awesome if you drop by.
0: Excellent. I need to persuade you to to come along to the um, South by Southwest live BOAG world as well, but I'll hassle you about that off of air so that you can back out if you want to without committing yourself live in an interview. Okay, so um, let's kick off by talking about the designer-developer relationship. And really, I I think that it strikes me that there's a lot of mythology around this, that, you know, designers and developers kind of hate one another. And I'm not convinced it actually works like that in practice. And when you guys did your panel um, at uh, Future of Web Design, you actually were agreeing on a lot of points. So I thought would start off by maybe highlighting some of the differences and then look at ways of working together um, further down the line so uh, let's talk about to begin with what you guys see as the main differences in outlook I guess between designers and developers how do you look at the world in different ways do you think maybe uh, Joe do you want to kick us off how do you think developers see the world differently to designers
3: sure I think uh, I think developers are definitely they're their default kind of response um, is that they would rather, I, I always make the joke that like coders by default are lazy. Like Good coders are extremely lazy people. That's why they're coders, because they want to automate as much of their life as possible. Um, so I think that uh, developers tend to get a little complacent when it comes to the actual um, product sometimes, because they're so busy and so interested and, and so worried about the actual code or the more nerdy side of things, you know, like are we running the latest greatest versions of different softwares? Um, Developers also tend to be a lot more interested in what the new hip nerdness is as opposed to what's actually going to make the product better for users. You know, so like I've been in, in product review meetings where people are like, well, why isn't this new version of, you know, some strange, bizarre open web specification that nobody's ever heard of ahead of, some major forward user feature. (laughs) (laughs) So um, I think that that tends to be like a big difference. The designers, you know, it's their job to to be curators of the website in my opinion and, and kind of move the user experience forward. And oftentimes the developers don't have a whole lot of interest in that. Yeah.
1: And on the the flip side of that, I mean, if we're both going to, you know, slag our own professions, um, I, I think designers are often, you know, pushing unrealistic goals. They're interested in building, you know, the perfect product and, you know, aiming straight for that instead of looking pragmatically at doing things in in steps and, you know, figuring out what's technically possible. And, And I think there's also, you know, a gap where designers can only see sometimes what features that they could do and don't understand, don't see the vision of where developers can see, you know, amazing things that they can do programmatically that designers just aren't envisioning.
0: Yeah.
3: Yeah. I think, I think that's a, that is a, another key difference that I know that there's a lot of, there have been struggles and tension between Daniel and I in the past over this idea of, of a holistic approach to design where, where Daniel designs his vision and his vision is normally version 10.0 and I'm looking at you know the technical roadmap and things that 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 I need to do, and I'm like, okay, well, let's talk about version 1.0, and then we can start talking about 2.0. Like, developers are much more focused on an iterative an iterative process as far as releasing, uh, you know, like small chunks, reducing risk, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And designers are tend to kind of like go, well, um, you know, it's like. It's like I want to build a pyramid. It's like great. Well, how about first we start up by finding some limestone and then work our way up to building a pyramid. So
1: what you're saying is we've got a fantastic optimism. <laughs> yes, <laughs> but I think that's, that's partly it. Is is developers are very interested, as Joe was saying, in mitigating risk. And a lot of ways, designers are very averse to even thinking about risk and want to think about opportunity. And so, hmm. and that's I think that. But that this is kind of the crux of the whole the whole thing. And you know what we were trying to talk about it. On that panel, I think, is that the, both those views are super valuable. And if you manage to find the right mix of those two things, you can develop a, a you know, fantastic product that both you know, is concerned about risk and that pushes the boundaries of what's possible.
0: Mm. I remember one point that came out from the, the presentation, which was one that you made, um, Joe, which is about the dangers if that mix isn't right. If, if, you know, it's always the designer that's in front of the client or the boss or whatever, um, the, the kind of realism of the developer is kind of left out of the process and that ideally the developer either needs to be involved in those kinds of meetings or there needs to be a conversation that happens between the designer and the developer before anything is ever presented Uh, is that kind of do you still feel like that is that still a valid point
3: yeah i i feel that that's an extremely valid point for two reasons um and this is a discussion that uh daniel and i actually just had yesterday in fact um the, the, the thing as a developer that the reason that I want to be involved early on in the development or in the design and, like, development of the product phase, you know, when when requirements are coming together and when, you know, the first kind of, you know, formations come out of the clay, so to speak, uh, is because two reasons. One, um, it, and they all kind of come back to the, the, the same kind of problem, is that the designers and the product people don't know the system, the actual, you know, bits and bytes that, Mm. that go into making the product as well as the developer, like the data and the code and the actual systems and stuff like that and how they're put together. Uh, So oftentimes, you know, two things happen. One, Daniel comes up with a design, and there's like one small, minute detail on the page that would require, you know, one of the largest computer farms in the world to calculate (laughs) in real time. Whereas in lots and, and just as often as, you know, that happens, where it's just like, you know, Daniel, I can't calculate that number in any meaningful way on a regular basis, so, you, you know, you got to remove that. But just as often as that happens, because of, you know, that as a developer, I have such, like, intrinsic knowledge of the relationships of the data and what data we're storing and stuff like that, just as often I'm like, well, why don't we expose this data or do this? And Daniel's like, well, I just... I didn't know that we could do that. I totally would have done that if I had known that that was possible or feasible.
1: Yeah, and that's that's especially that side of things. I mean, designers often hear the first part that Joe's talking about the, you know, well, that's not just not possible or it's more difficult than you think it is. You know, we're we're very, you know, any designer that's ever worked with a developer has heard that aspect of it. You know, and that's of course very valuable, but it's the other side of things that I think people fail to leverage most frequently is the Ability of developers to see you know different patterns than you in the mm. you know, in in the data and and you know come up with those suggestions you know it might still be your call whether or not that's a valuable thing for the user, but you know just hearing these ideas coming out is is amazingly valuable and that's shaped a lot of dig.
0: So would you say that that's a kind of you know a common mistake that maybe designers make with developers that they don't communicate enough with them? Um, Absolutely. I, I, yeah, designers
1: often see developers as mules. It's like you know, I made this thing go build it, and that's a bullshit attitude. It's terrible. Mm. You know, and, and not just designers either. I mean, all product people have a you know a tendency to do that. Mm. In some ways, you know, as Joe was talking about, you know, uh, developers being involved in the process at Dig, we've got a, a pretty good structure, I think, where design actually falls under the marketing team, and in some ways, I see design at. DIG big as a bridge between marketing and business development, you know, product interests and the development team. Because I'm often sitting over here and I hear, you know, somebody from business development or marketing throwing around an idea and I'm like, you know, I'm no developer, but I have a good sense of what the developers see as important and you're talking crazy talk. Like, <laughs> that's that's going to be nuts. And they're about to go pitch that to, you know, a potential partner and, you know, I, I've you know, every week I put the brakes on that kind of thing. I'm like, listen, you need to talk to Joe. You need to talk to a developer because that what you're talking about is going to be months of development, and you're promising it to a partner in two you know in two weeks. That's mm. nuts. And so mm. I like that, that you know in some ways the design team can often be a bridge between you know product marketing people and and the technical teams.
0: Joe, from your perspective, I mean, what kind of you know, as you're communicating with Daniel and, and other designers within Dig, you know, looking back, where do you think that you've made mistakes in your relationship with with designers? Um,
3: I, don't, I mean, uh, the, the mistakes that I often make. I mean, it's it's uh, it's not even a mistake. I mean, I don't want to say that what we do are like flat out mistakes. It's just more, um, you know, being a little bit more reserved and not necessarily defaulting your answer to no. Um, you know, I, I think that, you know, Daniel often talks about how a natural tension between design and product and development is actually good for the product because you have, you know, eventually, as long as you can keep that at a, at a, at a good tension and not, you know, bad or where things are breaking. But um, I think oftentimes developers are, are quick to say no, Um you know they'll be sitting in a meeting and it's just immediately no i'm not going to discuss that when in reality if they sat back and like you know let the idea germinate you know they would it's it's kind of weird because i've i've been in a lot of meetings where where the developers will will be like oh my god that's an amazing product we'll never be able to build it and so it's like they you know they want to build it but their you know their default is is to avoid risk so they all you know they say no so a lot of times when uh, when I talk with Daniel now, instead of, and this is something that I just kind of quit doing, is I try to quit. I try not to say no unless it's just like blatantly in black and white, no way that's possible kind of thing. Um, mm. And let the idea germinate a bit more. Like am I, I don't want to say no immediately. I want to go back and spend a couple hours thinking about it if it's, if it's actually feasible. Because maybe, you know, I mean, that's, That's what engineers love doing. They love solving difficult problems. And if you're saying no to difficult problems, then you're, you're failing at what your passion and hobby is. Mm. Um, so I think think that's,
0: there's there's also an aspect, is there not of, of, you know, not just saying no, but explaining why you're saying no. Um, so that, you know, the other party is kind of educated into the kind of problems that you face. So as Daniel said earlier, that they can be the bridge to, you know, business development or whoever else
3: yeah absolutely i'm I'm the king of analogies at this point um, but the other I think the other thing that developers uh this is extremely common that they utterly fail at is that they think for some reason that they're the like target demographic of the product <laughs> so you know they'll come into a meeting and the, and they'll be like well this this product will absolutely fail because you know uh it doesn't have key binding, so I can have keyboard shortcuts. It's like nobody uses keyboard shortcuts like mm. in the real world. They're all mice people, you know, and it's just yeah. it's just stuff like that. like a lot of times the developers are like, this will never work unless you have these fourteen completely nerdy niche <laughs> features in it, you know, and, and it's just I, I think developers too often, you know, they, they do that, and that's just silly yeah it's, that's
1: been an special you know problem at, at Digg since we t- started off as you know pure technology site, so it was seen as you know by developers for developers, mm-hmm. and you know we've obviously branched out from there and now you know we've got other interests you know I want to make sure you know people's mums can use the website, and that's you know certainly uh you make different uh different choices based on that.
0: Mm. I mean, it's very timely from my point of view to have this interview with you because on, on Friday we had a, a internal meeting in Headscape where we talked about, um, all kinds of production things. And one of the things that came out of the development team was this desire to be kind of involved in the process more and, uh, and to, you know, to have their say more and to just be included earlier. So I, I'm quite interested you know because obviously you guys have been working together for a long time what kind of practical advice would you give to perhaps this is a question just for me and not for anybody else but what kind of practical advice would you give for designers and developers working together um, within the organization how how can that relationship work better
1: well i think yeah absolutely involving your development team early in the process but that doesn't That doesn't necessarily mean, you know, sitting around brainstorming, you know, right at the beginning of a feature with them. I mean, I try to sit down, you know, work out an idea, you know, get it, you know, 20% of the way there. You know, work out some of the basic issues, figure out, you know, what this thing really means, what's at the core of it. You know, Mm -hmm. know, it, it might be, you know, 10 different features together, but what are we actually trying to achieve with it, right? So, you know, at least get that far you know even throw down maybe some basic wireframes or some, some really basic comps and then present it to the developers and it's like listen this isn't just an idea i came up with you know last night and i just want to you know spill my entire brain out in front of you it's something i at least i've thought through i've, I've put a few things you know through my brain and now here you know is this totally unformed or not totally unformed a slightly formed idea but it's not baked You know, Mm. don't wait until you've got it baked and then you're so disappointed when the development team says, well, that's not possible or have you really thought about this? And you've got this, you know, complete package already made up in your in your mind. But come to them with at least the, you know, the kernel of a thought out idea and get them to poke holes in it. Get them to, you know, push it in other directions and show you what else you could be doing and then go back to the drawing board again
0: and, you know, and take it to a more complete stage.
1: I would say your
0: point. Sorry, I was going to say what from what about from your point of view, Joe?
3: Uh, yeah. So um, I I agree with Daniel in some sense on that. I I think it's it's crucial to uh, before you take it to developers to formulate to formulate a cohesive problem or hypothesis. Like mm-hmm. if you come to the developers with a half baked problem that you're trying to solve, you're gonna get like. They're just going to run wild with it and, and kind of, you know, it's it, it's difficult sometimes to, to keep developers focused when they get excited about a problem. Mm-hmm. Um, so have a formulated problem that, you know, th- that you have a small idea of how you're going to fix, but not fully baked. Um, the other thing, too, and, and this goes, I think, on both sides of the aisle, uh, um, it shouldn't be get developers, plural, involved, and it shouldn't be get you know, like when you're first germinating that idea and, and you haven't really moved it forward, start small and then continually expose it to more and more people. Because um, I find if you involve too many people early on in the process, whether it's designers, developers, product people... Things tend to you tend to lose focus quickly, and everybody wants you know. It's, it's kind of like pork barrel spending and, and major bills, right? It's like everybody wants to like piggyback extra features and stuff and pet projects that they wanted for so long into like some major new feature. And
1: it's just simple death by committee,
3: right? Yeah, yeah.
0: Okay, that's that's interesting. The little random question. Um, I I remember going to a talk once where and I can't remember who it was that was giving it that where they suggested that. Um, designers and developers swapped roles for a while where you tried to kind of sit in the other person's shoes. And I was just interested whether you two have ever tried anything like that.
3: Oh, uh, that, would, that would be disastrous for me.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> I, I mean, I appreciate, you know, development roles and I, you know, I'm, I'm somewhat technical for a designer, but yeah, no, I've never done that. But I've always worked so closely with the development team. Like at Silver Orange where I worked previously to dig, you know, there was only, you know, 10 of us. And, you know, I sat in a room with developers all of the time. I worked in their code with them, yeah. you know, worked out problems as a group. So I think I, you know, I, it, I've never worked in a place like, like say you worked at a big enterprise and you're you're in this classic where designers are in one office and developers in the other office and you toss stuff over the wall. Mm. There, I think that would, you know, hold a lot of value, at least go sit in the other office for, you know, go work in the other office for a few months and just hear the other discussions that are going on. Because there's mm. a totally different set of concerns, a totally different set of values than, than what you're doing. And if you don't at least appreciate and understand that, you know, and not just understand it so you know what you're fighting against, but understand it to know what's important
3: and how you can work with it, mm. then, you know, you'd be really missing out. Mm. I think I'm, uh, I'm kind of spoiled at Dick because, you know, I work with two of the web's brightest, uh, you know, Daniel and, and Mark Trammell as well. So I actually I actually push back on my, de- my developers pretty frequently where, they, you know, we'll leave a meeting and they're like, I really, really, you know, completely disagree with what what Daniel or Mark are doing with the design. And, you know, I tell them all the time, I'm like, look, you're not a designer and you're definitely not at the level that those two are at. And sometimes you just have to defer to them and trust that they that they're doing their job and they're doing it well, you know. And and um, I think I think developers don't do that often enough to where they they make these assumptions that you know the artsy fartsy designers are doing stupid <laughs> shit again, and that's that's not the case. I mean, they would not be, you know, especially where where we're at. I think at Dig and whatnot. I mean, you know, Dig is able to be very picky with who they, you know. Bring it on, and and the people that Daniel's brought in into design are extremely competent at what they do. Uh, so I, I'm not probably qualified to answer that question because I'm so spoiled. I dig, but that is a common problem that I see from developers where um, they don't let the designers do their job, and they try to be designers when in reality, you know, they don't have the experience or the exp- you know, the expertise. So.
0: Let's talk about um, conflict resolution. So that sounds very grandiose. But basically, you know, how do you go about resolving a situation where, you know, okay, you, you kind of respect each other's skills and you respect each other's competences. But, you know, where some feature is suggested by, by Daniel and, and, you know, you, Daniel, you, from your point of view, it's absolutely core to what you're trying to achieve. You know, it's extremely important. And then from a technical angle, um, Joe, it just seems incredibly complex and very, very difficult. How, how's the eventual decision made as to whether that feature should be implemented, um, and in what way it's implemented? How do you go about resolving that difference?
3: Um, well, I mean, I think as far as making the decision of whether or not the, the feature makes it in, cause there's, there's, there's actually, I think, two possibilities when it comes to the conflict resolution, whether or not the feature actually makes it into the product and in what capacity does that feature make it into the product. Mm-hmm. And I think in the, in the, in the former, you know, whether or not the feature actually makes it into the product. If, if Daniel comes to me and, and he's resolute, like this feature has to be in the product, the feature is going to be in the product. I'm always going to defer to Daniel on, 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 if, if he feels that strongly and is that passionately about it and can, you know, and it's not, you know, something completely her brain, like I want magic ponies to come flying out of the screen then I'm going to defer to his expertise on the fact that that feature needs to be in the product hmm. where, where the conflict resolution comes into is what capacity is that feature going to come into the, into the product? Like a, a perfect example, I think of something where there has been, we've had a recent discussion at dig where this has happened is we have, and I, I talked about these, I think, probably in our last talk, but there's these uh, little green badges on the dig buttons, and they indicate that one of your friends has dug that story. And then when you hover over the dig button, it shows, like, a little sampling of the people that have dug it. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> so those were causing significant strain and problems with our systems and in our code and on our databases. So I came to Daniel, and, of course, again, as my risk aversion developer brain was coming to Daniel, I was like, "Uh, so can we axe this feature until we can figure out how to, like, fix it? And he was like, no, that feature absolutely can't be axed. Um, And then we came to kind of a resolution that's a short-term solution until we can get a better solution in place where operations now has knobs that they can dial down so the green badges don't show up on stories older than 48 hours they don't show up on stories that have more than say 5 or 600 digs and stuff like that. So the conflict resolution came in basically making trade-offs in how that feature is surfaced and works. Um, at our scale more often than not what that means is Daniel has to give up the notion that everything is in real time mm-hmm. and that the feature will work. It's just that it may take, you know, 30 seconds to a minute for an action to be distributed across the entire system. Mm-hmm. That's. Probably more how things are now at Dig. So,
0: what about from your point, Daniel? You know, you know, when do you back down over something, and and when do you keep pushing on? How do you decide? You know, how you know how serious serious Joe is about something, and whether you should keep pushing or not.
1: Right. I mean, it kind of comes down to you know when I'm looking at the product, I'm not thinking about any one feature. I'm thinking about you know the whole set, and I want it all to work together. And so you know. I know I want to push out you know, six different features this month, and if I make, you know, push and push Joe to do the one really hard one, well, that's going to affect the other five I wanted to get done. Mm. And so you know, any feature is you know, tied to other features, and it's also based on a timeline. If I want something done in a certain timeline, and that's just not possible, well, then I've got to start making compromises. Mm. So you, know, you, you have to be realistic. And then you know, at the same time, you have to realize that developers work well with shame, And so if you tell a developer, well, I bet a good developer could do that. They'll they'll go back to their cube grumbling at you and
3: figure out a more efficient way to do it.
0: So, yeah, now we're getting into the realms of how to manipulate each other. Absolutely.
3: That's definitely definitely one that I, I agree does work, but is not a trick you want to pull out of
1: your bag very often. No, for switching designers, too. It's like, I want to do this really complex thing. I'm like, no way I can explain that to users in a way they'll understand. They're like, I thought you were good. And you're just like, oh, shit, you know, I'll go back and try that again.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, that's quite interesting what you just said there because uh, so far we've talked very much about, you know, designers um, initiating features and that kind of stuff. I mean, are there situations where the developer is the one initiating features. You know, you just said there a developer wanted to do something really cool and, you know, and you said you couldn't explain it. D- does it does it run that way as well, or is it always the yeah. designer that drives first? No, absolutely. That that happens a dig.
1: You know, it happens sometimes a dig. So Joe yesterday sent me an email that had two big feature ideas in it. You know, it may not be things we implement this month, but, you know, some, maybe later on this year, and you know, I was looking at them and, you know, it's easy to disregard. It's like, well, developer he doesn't understand what you know what's going on with the product, but you look at the ideas and they're strong and they fit you know fit in what with what we're doing and now I'm trying to figure out you know how they make sense in the big picture, I guess. So mm. you know, we've got a brilliant development team, a lot of people over there with great ideas, and you know, we try to sit down, you know, I guess Kevin's been doing those we we do meetings once a month, I guess, where you know developers if they've been working on a you know a side project you know something they've always wanted to build into Dig, they can present this at like the Dig Ideas meeting, oh, and yeah. a bunch of those products will make it into the into the full Dig. I mean, it's awesome to let these brilliant people go and you know throw around crazy ideas and you know show you what's possible.
3: I think, uh, <clears throat> yeah, I, I mean, I I agree with that. We we definitely have. It is a two-way street. Um, largely, stuff comes from product at this point. Uh, the the dig ideas meetings is definitely helping that you know open that up and kind of what I would call level that playing field a bit. Mm-hmm. Um, but one of the things I think developers are in a in a in a unique position, just like you know, just like Daniel, I work with people across the entire company, so I know initiatives that are going on in marketing. I know initiatives that are going on in PR and biz dev, um, etc. And, you, you know, if nothing else, developers are very good about noticing and, and pointing out and discovering patterns. And uh, a recent product that made it out that uh, was a developer-initiated product was Dig Dialog. Because, basically, I noticed this common this common pattern where business development and and marketing and PR were setting up interviews and then, like, reaching out to people to, like, conduct interviews using the Dig Engine kind of thing. And I was like... Mm-hmm why don't we bake this into like a cohesive feature that's turnkey? Because, you know, business development, like Daniel was saying earlier, lots of times, you know, they're just making these one-off deals, you know, and they don't really recognize sometimes when there's a product to be had there. Mm. Um, So that's, that's another one that, that recently went out that it was just like, I recognized a pattern. I was like, let's bake this into something cohesive and, and move it forward.
1: Well, that's a mm. good example where, you know, we were being lazy. It's, you know, some people want to do this one-off thing over and over again and it's a bunch of work to do it each time. We're like, well, we'll just build a system to do it and then we don't have to do all the work every time. It mm. was great.
0: Okay. That I mean that's that's really good. But let's leave them with with one final question or or one thing from each of you, which is, you know, if you could give, you know, one piece of advice to the designers or developers on how to kind of interact with their counterpart, what would that one piece of advice be? Let's kick off with you, Daniel. What would be your one piece of advice to designers about dealing with developers?
1: I guess my one piece of advice would be to to see the big picture. You know, aim for version 10, like we were talking about earlier. Sure. Know what what you want to build in the future, but be realistic enough to back it up and build it in stages. You know, mm. waiting and building a feature over, you know, six months and eventually launching it is a terrible way to develop and it's a terrible way to design, having an idea of where you want to be in six months but releasing it in one-month increments is so much better. You'll end up in a different place, but at least you know where you're heading and you can adjust that goal as you go forward.
0: Yeah, brilliant. Joe, what about you?
3: Um, I would say to the developers out there that that there are different shades of no. Um, That, you know, there's... (laughs) The default shouldn't always be no, and, and to remember what I said about the conflict resolution that you should be deferring to the people that are experts in their field um, by default for the most part and to, to, to work on compromise in how the feature operates and, and make your concessions and have them make their concessions in that arena rather than just defaulting to saying you know no to the entire feature.
1: And push to and as a developer, push to be involved early in the process. Yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, even at Dig, we struggle with that a lot. And as a designer, I appreciate when developers want to be involved. I want mm-hmm. to hear their opinions. You know, it's it's fun to have them involved. I hear all kinds of crazy stuff that I never never even considered. That's awesome.
0: Excellent. Thank you so much, guys. That was really good. I'm, I appreciate you coming back on the show yet again. Um, but it, it's really good to get your your perspectives together on on that relationship because it is one that a, a lot of people struggle with. So it's good to, good to hear that it can work most of the time. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you for your time. Thanks Thank for you. having us on, Paul. Bye. Bye. Okay. So, um, today's listener contribution to the show is actually a question from Paul Carter, um, in New York. Um, and actually I'm very grateful, Paul, for your question because I wrote a, um, blog post off the back of it. Which then got picked up by Smashing Magazine, which is uh, the post I mentioned earlier. Um, And then on top of that, it's now going to be reprinted elsewhere. So it seems to be a popular in-subject at the moment that Paul has raised. Certainly is. Um, And basically, he said, uh, I noticed you've been laminating a lot on Twitter. Laminating? Lamenting. Lamenting. Laminating is what you do with the paper, isn't it? turn them into bits of plastic. Yes. So um you have been lamenting a lot on Twitter about it becoming a marketing tool. And is that really wrong? Shouldn't we be embracing it and using it as a marketing tool? Yes. So an interesting question. It got me thinking, and it is true that uh, that Twitter is changing at the moment. You know, everybody from Britney Spears to Obama seem to have a, a Twitter account these days. Um And I think it's fair to say now that Twitter has gone mainstream or is on the edge of going mainstream. Um, Chris w- Moyle spent half an hour talking about it yesterday. Did more, he not really? last week, one of the mornings. And I was driving up to today um, listening to Radio 4's Comedy Hour and they were mentioning it on that as well. So yep. I think in the UK it's suddenly gone massive. Yep. Um, I don't know about other countries. So what does this mean? You know, Should we be embracing it as website owners? Um, well, I sent my first Twitter... Or tweet, should I say, mm. on November 2006, which was only seven months after the service was launched. And I was at the Refresh 06 conference um, when I was introduced to it. And it was actually a really valuable way of keeping in contact with the people that I met at that conference. Um, it was a lot less intrusive than instant messaging and less formal than email. Um, But for the longest time, it 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 has just been the the tool of geeks, so to speak. My friends used to laugh at me um, as I sent tweets from the pub, um, and my family stared blankly as I tried to explain what it was all about. Um, Yeah, but that's changing. I I
2: can't quite put my finger on why it works (coughs) over other things that do exactly the same thing. And I think it's because it's all it does.
0: Yeah, it's very very focused.
2: Yeah, and it works really well. Mm. Be interesting to hear the rest of this post because i haven't read it yeah
0: so twitter's everywhere at the moment i mean stephen fry and jonathan Ross talked about it yeah. um in front of four million viewers um and, and because it's going mainstream it's increasingly um being used as a, a marketing tool and i basically i think there is no going back and i and i agree with paul when he you know that i am wrong to lament that twitter is changing you know, cause there's a part of me that thinks, oh, it's all becoming marketing. Everybody's pimping their blog posts and, uh, you know, and to some degree I'm doing the same and we're recognizing that there's a real power there. And I kind of liked it when it was a, you know, group of us just kind of talking about stuff we were doing and it was friendlier in somehow. But, but there's no point of lamenting it. And we do need to kind of accept that it's changing, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't be careful about the way that we use it. Um, and I think that Twitter is so much more than just a broadcast mechanism for pimping your latest blog post or special offer or whatever. Um, and I think that it will fall apart if it becomes just that, if it becomes just a kind of mechanism for for broadcasting yeah. stuff. I don't
2: think I have used it to market anything at all. And I'm, I think my first post was on about December the 17th last year. Yeah. But I just like it for what it is. <coughs> yeah. Have a little
0: rant or... But, it, but I'm, I'm looking at... There's a lot of articles out there at the moment about how to monetize Twitter and how to market through Twitter. And, and there's people... There are social media consultants at the moment that are going around teaching companies how to use Twitter and it all... Mm. Andy Andy Bub posted a very similar article, Mm. um, you know, talking about how he's slightly uncomfortable with it. I mean, he's a big hippie. Um, But it depends what you you mean by market. I will definitely, once we've finally finished
2: these bloody mixes of the new songs... Tell everyone who, who follows me on Twitter... Yeah. Go, to, go and listen to these songs and we'll put them up for free for however long. Yeah. Uh, that's marketing my band. Yeah. But it's all for free, but it's still me going, come and look at me, come and look at me. Yeah.
0: And it's a fine line of how you do... I mean, you know, I, I'm still trying to work this through for myself, mm. you know, and uh, in some... I, I'm almost a bit embarrassed that it was posted in, in Smashing Magazine in some ways because it, it kind of makes me out to be some big Twitter success and I'm not. I've got, you know, four and a half thousand followers, but compared to Stephen Fry and his eight gazillion followers, you know, that's, that's not a lot in the grand scheme of things. Um, but what's quite interesting is the way that I'm, I'm having to try and work out how to use Twitter and Twitter's mm. becoming very much a, the third string in, in BOAG world, really. You know, there's the blog, yeah. there's the podcast, and now there's Twitter. Um, you know, and it's really interesting that more people subscribe to my Twitter feed, uh, or my, my Twitter account that's actually subscribed to my pure blog account you know mm. not that many people subscribe via rss to my blog even though a lot more read it so it's really interesting how different people are using these things and mm. and you know how where you draw the line so anyway i i, I kind of boiled all this down I, obviously because it's a smashing magazine post to, uh, yeah. to a number of points that i want to talk through i don't think it's as many as 10 actually i think it's only four. Oh no no it's 10 <laughs> this is gonna take oh no it's eight you're okay you've got two less so i'll make up nine and ten okay you can do that so let's look at some ways that i've come up with using twitter well above all keep it personal you know there are examples of successful kind of broadcasting twitter accounts cnn breaking news is an example of that but i think generally speaking corporate twitter accounts are a mistake um twitter in my opinion is about person-to-person communication it's not a broadcast tool for faceless corporations um Yeah, I agree. And does but does that mean that you can't have a Twitter account that is for an organisation? No, Uh, because you can. I think. Well, yeah, you obviously can. But is it wrong to? No, I mean, in some ways, you could argue that. Well, I my Twitter ID is Boag World. It's not Paul Boag. Um, but that's because I use Boag World for everything. I still consider it my personal account, but I don't. I don't think actually there's something anything wrong with that.
2: It's almost like then it just needs to, whatever gets posted needs to have some form of use, which might just be to make people giggle a bit. Yeah. If it's just if there's no point to it at all, then it's it shouldn't be there. But it's
0: even what you name the Twitter account. It's like yeah. you know, if you named it, um, if somebody had a Twitter account called Friedman you wouldn't necessarily know who that was but if it was called Smashing Magazine which is, you know, mm. Friedman is the one yeah. of the, the authors and founders of Smashing Magazine, you know, he's better off calling it Smashing Magazine because that makes more sense and people understand that. So, yeah. it's okay. I don't think it's so much as you have pointed out, it's not so much, you know, um, a matter of um what it's called it's more the tone of your posts and the way that it's put across you know is it endless strings of press releases and links where no it should be personal content it should be about a dialogue with your users it's about making a connection with your users and having an open and honest relationship because by doing that you're building trust and loyalty and engagement and that in turn you know encourages repeat traffic and word of mouth recommendations and that kind of thing's so that's number one, really, is keep it personal. Number two is learn from others. You know, I've learned a lot about Twittering from looking at those that I admire and people that I think Twitter well. Yeah. Merlin Mann is a great example of this. He injects a lot of humour into his posts, and his followers respond to that, and that's why they follow him, because yeah. he makes them laugh. Um, Dar- Darren Rose, um, a, a, he's a, a blogger who um, great creates a really great balance between recommending content and prom- uh, promoting his own posts. So it's a mixture of other people's stuff and his own. And you, you kind of subscribe to him because you know it'll be interesting content he's mm. p- you know talking about. Um, as well as that, looking at the styles of the way people Twitter, you can also examine the statistics as well. There's a great site called tweetstats.com. Um, which um, shows you how often people tweet and how often they reply to um, their followers and the balance they get, you know, because there's always the thing of, you know, how much should you tweet? Should you tweet, too, you know, if you tweet too much, then if somebody hasn't got many followers, it's just you, you know, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> pages of you and everybody else gets pushed out. While if you tweet too little, then if people have got a lot of followers, you're just lost in the, the overall stream and noise. So it, it's about getting a balance there as well. Um, There's also some really great advice out there as well about using Twitter. There's a really good site Darren Rose um, produces called um, Tweetip, um, which includes some great articles like the merit of Twitter competitions or how to get yourself unfollowed on Twitter. So I've been reading some of those trying to get some advice from there as well. Um, another piece of advice, number three in my list of tips for using Twitter is to get yourself a good desktop client. Um, the one that, that I really recommend to people is TweetDeck, um, which is an Air application, which means it runs on Windows, um, Mac, and uh, Linux as well. Um, and it, it's really, really powerful and it's got some great features. You can create groups. Um, of users that you want to pay particular attention to you can filter your tweets you can monitor certain subjects as well as doing the normal stuff like tweeting and replying and reposting and that kind of stuff um, it can be a little bit of an intimidating app at first um, the tweet deck is not the most user-friendly app um, um, but i do post in the in the um, uh, show notes a short tutorial um, of how to get the most out of that so check out the show notes com forward slash podcast forward slash 152. Number four is to use Twitter on the road. Um, basically, I think Twitter really comes into its own when... You're using it when you're out and about, as well as just kind of when you sit at your desk
2: in pain at the dentist. Yes, that kind <laughs> of thing.
0: That's where you really bring in the personal elements, yeah. and people get to know you a little bit because you're out doing stuff. So, I mean, you could use the Twitter's mobile website, um, which is pretty good and does the job. Obviously, it does actually because yeah. I can't use Tweety. Can't you use Tweety? No. Oh. That's really sad. You can text. Did you know you can text to Twitter as that's well? That's all right.
2: They're using the, we're using it on okay. iPhone. Use that. Safari's
0: fine. Cool. Well, I mean, I, and then obviously, if you do have an iPhone and you haven't jailbroken it like um, Marcus. Um, I didn't do it. No, actually, that's very <laughs> true. Another individual, mysterious individual, very talented individual, uh, did uh, it right. for Marcus. Yes. <laughs> um, and that, yes, if you, uh, you haven't done all of those evil things, then you could use Tweety. And I love Tweety. By the way, you could use Tweety now because the new the upgrade to the iPhone has been cracked. So, <laughs> yeah,
2: but then we get another version will come
0: out. Yeah, it's, it's never-ending. I'll just stay where I am. Um, so Tweety is really good. It's a really good iPhone application that you ought to check out. It's got a clean, easy-to-use interface, yet it's packed with powerful features. It can handle multiple Twitter accounts. You can navigate reply chains to see who you know, people are replying to and what the conversation was about. You can view Twitter trends and perform custom searches. um, And you can even access users' complete profiles. Um, So it's really good. I only wish they did a desktop client, really. I think I'd prefer that because, like I say, TweetDeck is not the easiest to use. Number five, you should be tracking your results. I've already mentioned um, tweet stats, but that's kind of tip of the statistical iceberg, um, the thing that most interests me, the, the, the stat that I'm most interested in knowing is if I post a link to somewhere, mm-hmm. how many people click on that link and go and see it. Sure. Well, you could use Google Analytics to do that, and they produce, they've got a URL tagging tool which would enable you to track stuff that comes via Twitter, but it's fiddly to set up, and it, it provides very long URLs that are quite hard to fit into 140 characters. Um, but I've come up with it, or I found a tool called Tweet that solves the problem. Um, and it shortens URLs. So there's Twitter burner here. Yeah, that's what I said. I don't think it was. I, I, did. <laughs> I Definitely. don't think it was. No, I really did. No. I did. No, honestly. No, no, okay. No. Twitter burner. Um, and it allows you to shorten URLs and also track how many people have clicked through. So that's really interesting to be able to keep an eye on that. Kind of you know, you get an idea of of whether it's worth using it in that kind of way, whether people are interested in the links you're posting. Mm-hmm. Um, and TweetDeck has got that built in which is really good unfortunately Tweety doesn't so you have okay. to do it manually beforehand number six follow as well as be followed always remember that Twitter's is a two-way conversation um, and I think we, we need to be replying to those that tweet to you um, and I try and do that as much as possible I mean obviously um, you know, as your number of followers goes up that becomes increasingly hard but I do try to um and for that I've uh, there's a tool that kind of helps with that relationship um aspect of it and who you should you know who you should follow and who you should reply to and all that kind of thing. Um and that's a tool called Mr. Tweet. Um and it that provides two basic functionality uh, types functionality first it suggests people that you might want to consider following that um so what that does is it looks at the people that you're already following and says who are they following you know and if enough people are following somebody then it suggests you might want to follow them too okay why well, you you took in a breath there like you were about to- i'm uh, just
2: interested on the second point okay. you were about to make how yep. it does it well,
0: uh, uh, blah, 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 what do you mean how it does it? i will just explained how it does it.
2: The point that you haven't made yet. Right, the second sec- thing it does it Right, from your list of follow- followers who you should follow back.
0: Yeah. Oh, and you want to know how it how does, does that? How does it do that? It does it, it, it looks at so your you've list got of nice followers. Smiley faces. It looks at the number of followers they have. Right. Um, it looks at whether people that you're following follows them. Yeah. yeah. Um, I think it also looks at. Other information like how likely they are to follow you back if you follow that. Their- well, oh, no, 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 that's they the already first That's the first yeah. lot. Um, it looks like how, oh, how likely they are to reply to you and, and okay. get an interaction. So it, it uses lots of different things. I don't really fully understand it, to be honest. Because I find, I mean,
2: I've got, I don't follow many people at all. No. But it's kind of like cool because I can keep up with what people are saying. Yeah. Whereas if, I don't know how you can follow 200 people beyond me.
0: Yeah, I kind of let it go by me. It's like a river yeah. of information that I just dip into every now and again. Yeah. Um, but also I do do little things like I set up <coughs> groups in TweetDeck. Hmm. So I'll have a column in TweetDeck that shows me um, ah, people yeah, that I right. particularly want to extra follow, if that yeah, makes sense. Yes. Ah, Cool. So for each of these people um, that it's suggesting, it, it provides various statistics, including the number of followers they have, the chance of them replying to you, and how often they update. So it's a useful little tool. Check out Mister Tweet number seven. Integrate wherever possible. That I think Twitter should be very much a part of your overall web strategy. Um, so you know, for example, I think try and create a link between Twitter and your website. Um, like I'm for, in Boagwood soon, I'm going to start integrating Twitter into Boag world a bit more, okay. but certainly already I'm, you know, obviously including stuff from Boag world into Twitter. Yeah. Um, but also your other social networks, like I've got it set up so that, um, you know, I, I post my Twitters to Facebook and that kind of thing. Mm. And there are loads of tools out there. That help you do things like this from the bit, basic twitter widget that you can shove onto your website through to you know plugins for facebook and that kind of stuff so check those out um one that you might want to look at is something called twitter feed which allows you to automatically every time you put a blog post on on your website it automatically posts to twitter now use that with caution mm-hmm. i had it running for a while and then i turned it off mm-hmm. uh, i decided it i'd prefer to do it personally than be automated Um, But it is a useful tool that you might want to check out for some situations. And then the final um, point I wanted to make um, really is to kind of undermine everything that I've already said. (laughs) as my Mm. final point, which is that you can overthink this kind of stuff too much. um, And you can end up sucking out the spontaneity and personality of your tweets. Now, I'm not saying you shouldn't give any thought to your tweets at all. You know, I think possibly let's all avoid the drunken tweets that are probably best gone and we don't want to be, you know, lamenting at three o'clock in the morning when we're absolutely hammered that our life is a mess and, you know. See, I think that's great, but there you go. <laughs> um, but on the other hand, you want to avoid becoming too sterile and overthinking what you do. Oops. Let me Let me give you an example of where it can go wrong, right? Where, you know, I'm a reasonable public speaker. That's that's a part of what I do. And I think mm-hmm. I do it reasonably well. Um, but I got sent on a course once to teach me how to do public speaking. Okay. And it was crippling. <laughs> it was absolutely awful because I spent all day learning about these techniques and stuff. And so when I next stood up to speak, all yeah. the spontaneity had gone. All exactly. my natural charisma has gone because I was worrying about gesticulating too much or... You know, or the tone of my voice, or making eye contact, and it was all these things that was kind of buzzing around my head that it took away the natural ability I had to do yeah. that. And I think that the trouble is, is you can do it like this with Twitter as well. You can overthink it, and it can become too much about the statistics and should I be posting this or shouldn't I, and all the rest of it. Relax. It is a marketing tool, and you can use it as a marketing tool, but that doesn't mean you can't have fun with it too. Mm. So um, have fun with Twitter. Um, I think it should be a part of our web strategy now, but but please don't, you know, let it become too sterile. I couldn't agree more. So you can follow me at Boagworld and you at Marcus67. Marcus there we go. So there we go. So I didn't want to do Marcus Lillington because it's just such a long thing. I thought you'd go for Marcus World. No. Nah. You didn't think of it, did you? I did. Oh, did you? Yeah. No, you just didn't want to be associated with me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, I was like, um, uh, Marcus L. No, that's gone.
2: Um... Uh, I know, just I'll I'll do, I don't know, 67, the year I was born. Sorry, what was that? It was the year I was born. What,
0: 67? Yeah. Wow, that must make you near dead. 42 years ago. (laughs) It's my birthday soon. Is it? When's your birthday? 28th of this month. There we go. So everybody said Marcus... Nice big and It's a Saturday. That's cool, isn't it? Yes. Having your birthday on a Saturday. I always take my... Well, when I was at school, my birthday, because mine was the 31st of March, it almost always fell in the Easter holidays. Yeah, my son's similar. He's April the 10th. Yeah. He's Good Friday this year. Yeah. That's so, useful. There you go. So then follow us on Twitter, um, because I'm trying to up the number of my <laughs> followers. I've got 390 or something Ooh. in, in a, a month, which that's is kind of cool, cool isn't yes. it? Yeah, that's very good. And I just talk a load of old
2: toddle. Well, yeah, I mean, yeah. we all do, don't we, yeah. really?
0: Although I do, I post some useful links as well. You do, yes, to be fair. Just occasionally. And then moan a lot about feeling ill and stuff like that. So do you have a joke to finish today's show? Basically, I've got some quite amusing adverts.
2: Oh, yeah. um, You know, classifieds from Bo. Thank you, Bo. Things like, um, (laughs) Washer, owned by a clean bachelor who seldom washed. (laughs) Snowblower for sale, used only on snowy days. (laughs) Free puppies, part German Shepherd, part dog. <laughs> Love that one. Uh, there we have free puppies again, part cocker spaniel, part sneaky neighbour's dog. <laughs> <laughs> right really. Sorry, took me a while to get that one. Full sized mattress, twenty year warranty, like new, slight urine
0: smell. <laughs> Excellent. They're really uh, good. Those remind me a little bit of um, what you get on the end of the news quiz on Radio Four, where they. They read out various, yeah. you know, badly worded adverts and and uh, articles and stuff. Couple more, just two more. Free, okay. it's, it's all dogs, isn't it? Free Yorkshire
2: Terrier, eight years old, unpleasant little dog. <laughs> <laughs> That's a bit honest. Brilliant. <laughs> and tired of working for only nine dollars seventy-five per hour? We offer profit sharing and flexible hours. Starting pay seven to nine dollars.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. Thank you for those, Bo. Those are really good. I I like them. More More of of them, please. Yes. Yes. Okay, so thank you for listening to today's show and uh, join us again next week. And I'm determined next week we're going to do a live show. So check out my Twitter feed because that's where I'll post when we're going to do it. I'll also probably post it on the Borough Awards website as well. So scoot along there as well. Thanks for listening. Talk to you soon. Bye. Hello, world and BoAs.
1: being on David Letterman.
0: show, visit bowedworld.com forward slash contact, call 020 8133 5122, or join our forum at bowedworld.com forward slash forum.